All right, everybody, welcome to a brand new interview. I'm sitting here with composer Lily Hayden. Lily, thank you so much for, for joining me this evening. It's so great to sit and chat. So happy to be with you, thanks. Yeah, so to start off, I like to ask this question uh, to kind of set the, the mood for the conversation. And you can take this question however you take it as a human being, as a, as a, as a storyteller, as a musician, as an artist. What does uh, music mean to you? Music is the first language that I learned to communicate in for real, like for with with real emotion. And it was a way to express things that were uncomfortable uh, in a way that people could accept. So it's really my key to the world. Um, it's also I found that it, you know, I'm, I've traveled the world as a recording artist and a you know performer and have found that it it's my connection to people across religions, across borders, across uh you know racial every kind of divide yeah. <laughs> across species um uh i've i have actually sung to uh i sang a pig to sleep once um oh, wow uh, i sang to the monkeys in india and they tried to attack me um <laughs> <laughs> and i sang to the kitties the kitty. uh, but, <laughs> uh and in, in film, and and I'm also, I was a human rights, uh, I, I performed for a lot of human rights organizations right. and uh, with a poli-sci major uh, at, at college. And, uh, and I thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer. And I realized that uh, that music was a way to bypass the intellect and to just go right for the heart. So I find that, you know, you can deal with, uh, as I said, really uncomfortable issues uh, with music and it opens people up to another level. It's also the way that, I think it's as close to to being to, to making magic as we can, you know, touching spirit as we can really kind of quantify and actualize. Um, yeah, because you can make a sound that changes the way people feel. I mean, you could do that yeah. with words, but it, this is this transcends. And I, and actually, uh, I, <laughs> this is probably more information than you needed. Uh, I also uh, have done a lot of research on the brain. Uh, I actually had I had pesticide poisoning about 10 years ago and, oh, wow. and had to deal with some brain damage, which music actually helped me overcome. Um, and I understood, I learned that uh, with electroencephalograms, they've determined that when people are listening to or playing music, especially playing music, that it lights up the brain in a way that no other discipline does. So it's the most effective neurotherapy available um so uh it's it's really the key to life for me yeah no i, I remember i remember the, that video that went i think viral a few years ago of that it was like an old man with dementia and then he literally they played his favorite music from his time when he was growing up and he just lit up and started singing and could even remember the lyrics and i think it's just that amazing that the way our brain works and how it, how music connects to it and just connects all of us yeah absolutely Absolutely. And, and actually, when my mom was on her deathbed, I uh, I had this, I was sort of, I heard a voice telling me, you know, you're like to get my violin out. Mm. Um, and I got my violin out and then I was given these intervals that I have taken to be the intervals to call in spirit whenever I need to. Oh, and wow. I, I called it the last serenade. And, oh, wow. and, uh, and I've played that for people, uh, you know, at memorials, and I've actually played it for people as they've died wow. like several times. It's actually, it's like a midwife thing to the other yeah. side. 
Um, so keeping it light. I like to keep things light. No, um, no, <laughs> no, but that is so fat. No, that is beautiful, but it's also fascinating. That's, that's incredible. Um, but I mean, I want to, I want to dive into, I love hearing about, you know, people's origin stories and I want to rewind kind of going back, uh, you know, you mentioned your, your mother, but also, uh, you know, you, you had two pretty iconic figures as parents growing up. So I'm curious if we, if we go back to your childhood, what was your childhood like? And, and I know your parents were, you know, your mom, especially, you know, she was a comedian and very creative. And so I'm curious, when did, uh, I guess the, the artistic creative bug hit and when was it music, did music enter your life very early? Did it come later? Did you fight it off? Like, no, I don't care about it. And when did it become kind of part of you? My mom used to joke that I learned to play violin in the womb, and it was very irritating. And she used to play music. She was a singer-songwriter, so music was, you know, I think they've done studies with, like, you know, if you have music around when, you know, in vitro, you know, it, it changes the brain, and, you know, there's probably a proclivity to being musical. Both my parents were very musical. My dad had an exquisite singing voice, and so did my mom, and they were both oh. singer-songwriters, not classically trained. Um, and as a classically trained violinist, I had no respect for that. Uh, but I did start uh, I, as a child, of course. Now, of course, I mean, they were profound and it's a, yeah. such a, an, a a gift. Um, sadly, they've both, both passed on. But um, uh, that is my inheritance is, you know, their music, their, their beautiful uh, creations. Um, I started, my mom had a band and she had a violinist in her band. And I used to watch as a, you know, toddler, I would watch the violinist and she got me this tiny little like quarter size violin that I would pretend to be playing with. Uh, I, I had a dream I could play violin when I was seven and my mom honored that dream. And, uh, and I started taking private lessons uh, right before my eighth birthday. And actually the day that I got my violin, my mom wrote a song in G major, which is a key where you can play open strings on the violin without having to know how to play. So I had a chance to jam the very first day that I had my violin, which wow. was, you know, a gift that it just simply, violin usually takes five years to have any sense of musicality, um, you know, so yeah. uh, it was a really profound gift. And actually I've, I've just recorded it and I want to release it for Mother's Day and I'm going to release it with and without the lyrics. Um, so that, uh, so that other people who, you know, if they want to, they want to yeah. give that gift to their kids, uh, can do that. That's a, that's so amazing. So uh, I'm curious, when did, so yeah, yeah, I know you're, a, you're a profound, like amazing violinist and you're a vocalist. And I'm curious, when did you start, when did music become, I guess, more than a hobby and started you know, like, okay, this might be a career this, because I know you, you went to school for something else. So I'm curious, when did the career aspect of it come into play and led you to where you are today? Uh, I really thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer. I, you know, yeah. I, I grew up in LA. I didn't see, you know, I, I was lucky enough to, my violin teacher was in the LA Philharmonic and I had the chance to do a duet with her with the LA Phil when I was 15. Uh -huh. And I was also a professional actress and I paid for college myself uh, with money made at acting. Uh, so I had, I was a very artistic kid, but, uh, but I didn't know, there was no example of, uh, I knew that the classical world was going to be too all-encompassing. I was too kind of curious and academic and, uh, you know, I was too curious about other things to just be the 10, you know, our day practicing classical music person. Um, and uh, although I loved music, I mean, that was my great, great passion. Um, so I really didn't see a viable way to make a living. And I saw my parents were starving artists. I, you know, I grew up on welfare. Um, yeah. 
So I did not want to be a starving artist. And um, and so I thought, you know, I'll just it'll be a, a side thing. But then in my junior year of college, my violin was stolen and it was kind of I took it to mean that the universe was saying, you know, either use it or lose it. And and at that point, and I was dating a guy who was in a band, a salsa band, and he borrowed a violin from the music department for me. And uh, and I started jamming with them and I realized that I couldn't live without it. And the mm. and every time I played with somebody, 10 more people would ask me to play with them. And it was, and I, I had so, I was, I was a very unpopular child. So having the kind of, to be able to connect so viscerally and intimately with people through music was, it, it was, it unlocked an entire universe, a, a stratospheric connections for me. It was, I, I could, I never could turn back. I just realized that there was nothing that I loved more. And when, when young people ask me, you know, for advice, I ask them, you know, on music, on a music business, I say, well, is there anything else you could be happy doing? And yeah. if they say yes, I say, do that and make this a hobby because it's the, the vicissitudes are just too intense yeah. uh, for, for, you know, for somebody who isn't completely about music and it, but if there's nothing else you could be happy doing, then I say, you know, go for it with all your might, every fiber of your being, every cell. Uh, and that's how I've lived my life. And I married a man who's lives his life like that. Also, he's a brilliant mm. bassist and, um, and composer as well. And he plays uh, multi-instrumentalist. He plays on my stuff as well. Um, and in our marriage vows, he, he vowed to be my husband and my house band. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> so, uh, so talk to me about, so once you decided like to go kind of in on, on composing and, and, and all your solo work as well, uh, what were kind of the first jobs you had in the industry? I know you, you've worked a lot with Hans at the start on some of his scores being, uh, a featured vocalist and violinist and when did it start becoming more writing and additional composing and then finally to kind of writing and, and scoring your own stuff i uh i made a bunch of solo albums uh and i yeah. still do i put out my last one last year through lakeshore um and i you know i started writing songs that was sort of the currency that was how you know a person with ideas who played an instrument could express themselves yeah. uh, I didn't even think about film music until um, people who like my records started asking me to score their films um, and the very first film that I scored uh, I, I paired up with uh, a friend who played in my band um, and it was he did most of the work you know all the technical work so it was just for me it was just like I, I started I started composing when I was seven you know yeah, like yeah. as soon as i as soon as i picked up the violin i started hearing things um and um and it was and i would the first drive to actually really start writing was when i was playing on other people's bands and i kept playing the same solo on every person's song and my boyfriend at the time said that's because you're supposed to write that down and make that your piece of music um and uh, and then uh, I scored a documentary, a wonderful documentary called The Horse Boy with my friend Kim Carroll, who, uh, with whom I did the Sundance uh, Fellowship um, uh, when it was still going. So sad that that's not happening anymore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that got into Sundance and swept all the festivals. And I just thought, oh, that's just how the way it goes, you know? And, uh, and I did, a, I've done like coming up to 20, um, 
indie films and documentaries. And, uh, and then uh, a friend of mine uh, called me and said, hey, do you want to pitch on, on a TV show with me? And uh, it was Ginny and Georgia. And, uh, and I've been, we've been really lucky. That's Ben Bromfield. He's a wonderful composer and we yeah. just get along great. We have great chemistry. And, uh, and it's been, it's in Netflix's top 10 film sh shows of all time. Um, so that's been really yeah. fun. Congratulations. Uh, because season two, I mean, it was, you guys broke the records with like, it was like two something billion hours streamed the first week. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, and, uh, I've lived, both of my parents were kind of, were, were avant-garde artists and I yeah. made most of my music, even though I was signed to major labels, most of my music was kind of fringy and eclectic. Um, you know, NPR kind of stuff, uh, yeah. which, uh, which is great. And that's really my aesthetic, but I've never really made music that I knew that that many people would listen to. And yeah. uh, that's been really fun. Uh, and uh, I get to write songs for it also. So I, yeah, I know the songs are, and I will talk about, I want to talk about that later, but the songs, I mean, blew up and earworms that are hooked with people and the soundtrack is doing so well. So yeah, that's, that's incredible. But before we jump, I would I want I do want to talk about Jenny and Georgia. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to kind of ask maybe on a more general. I know this is going to be so different based on whether you're writing a solo project or you're writing to picture. But I'm curious if there is a way to answer it. Where does the first note come from from you? I know you described you know somehow how you kind of felt notes coming to you when you were sitting by your mother on her deathbed and certain things. So I'm sure you have multiple sources of inspiration. But maybe if we focus just on maybe writing to picture. I'm curious, where does the first note come from? Where do you usually gravitate towards to find that first kind of little essence of inspiration? Do you like to, if you're lucky enough to read the script, if you're on early, do you wait for a first cut? Do you go for a walk with the ideas? I'm curious kind of what your your process is. It's all of the above. I mean, I, yeah. I like probably most composers like to be involved from the, as early as possible. Right. You know, anytime I read a script or watch a first assembly, I the first like it, something will come to me halfway through it's like somebody whispering in my ear and I get an idea and nine times out of ten that's either the main theme or one of the main themes mm. uh, it just comes and then uh and you know and I kind of because music is my first language uh, and I was an actress and I was the child of a sociopath. So a uh, drug addict. So there's the, that Al-Anon thing of like noticing every, you know, flick of an eyelash that, you know, tells you, not my mom, my mom was an angel, my father was, uh, uh, but you know, you notice every flick of an eyelash that that tells you something has changed and how do you respond to that? So I am, I, I'm very emotionally driven mm. and, um, and because the violin, you know, melody, was my first, the first way I was able to express myself. Uh, it just, it like, I know how to make, I, like, I feel like somehow I speak the language of emotion through music. And yeah. that is just, it's like, I can, you know, it, it's sort of like when you like do an impression of somebody, how do you conjure up the cadence and essence of a person? Right. Well, I do that. I try, I can, I'm a good mimic as well, but I also, uh, but I, but it really manifests really well for me through through uh, through melody and themes or or a a mood or a you know it, it that's it's just kind of second nature to me. Um, yeah. And then when I'm composing, I also still practice every day uh, my violin and my voice. Um, so when I'm sitting at the piano or playing violin, I actually so I'll give you a little um, 
a, a little tiny sidetrack, which is that, uh, so when I, I improvise, I started improvising when I was, you know, when I start, first started playing violin and, um, and, in order to, and then I went back to my violin teacher a handful of years ago. Um, she was Russian. She was a student of Golomian. You know, this is—I don't know if that means anything to you, but uh, this is like you know violin royalty. Yeah. And, uh, and she said, "You're daydreaming. Why are you know you're not focused? You need to focus." <laughs> Um, and I, so I, like, I took her to, uh, I don't know, for the next couple of, um, you know, for the next month, I didn't, I, I wouldn't let myself daydream. I was just focused, focused, focused. And I was reading, uh, stuck to the page. And the next time I got on stage, I clammed up and I couldn't improvise. Oh, it wow. was so weird. It was like, that was completely like antithetical to my very nature. Yeah. And I realized that what I, that, that daydreaming is part of my discipline but the reason that a lot of string players classical players don't do that they've been trained so you know it's such a rigorous discipline that you have to stay focused on the page um and and in order to have the kind of tone and technique that really sings in that classical in that truly sonorous way you have to have that discipline but i realized that i needed to apply that same discipline to my daydreams. So mm. I created kind of a technique called daydreaming with discipline, where if I, I, I'll be playing scales, I'll be playing a, a, you know, arpeggio or an etude or something, and then I'll let myself hear something and I'll stop and I'll play it with the same rigor and attention to detail as I would if it were repertoire. Um, wow. and, uh, and through that discipline, I get a lot of ideas. So it's sort of like, a, it's a springboard. Everything that I come across, whether it's, you know, just a simple arpeggio to do my voice exercises or my cat meowing as uh, as she was before we started, yeah. um, you know, um, turns into, you know, and, and I'm able to, it, it's like everything is inspiration. Yeah. Um, I, and it really makes life enchanted. So it's, I guess, life is my inspiration. If that doesn't sound too corny. No, I mean that. I mean, it, I think just being a sponge of just your surrounding and just just absorbing it, and then being a kind of a conduit or translator into turning, you know, like feeling the emotions around you. I mean, that's. I, it's funny because I'm not a I'm not a composer musician. I can't. I come from just you know. I, I fell in love with it because of music. But I went to film school. I, I knew what I wanted to do when I was like nine years old. And I was like, this is because I just found the emotion. You're speaking about the emotional connection. And it's just like when I was little, you know, if I was uncomfortable or if I was sad or if I was angry, you know, I, I wasn't I was a very shy kid. So I would just usually just go to my room with my Sony Walkman and just, you know, listen to scores. And that my dad's uh, friend had a record shop in D.C. and he would bring home all the the samples that they would, you know, to to stock up on those albums. And I would just take pick out the ones that were soundtracks and just kind of focus on that. And that's how it, it came for me. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the score to um, a movie. It was a, a Mark Isham score called the moderns. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, the moderns. And then uh, the mission, of course, uh, mm. and funny. Um, but both of those, and of course, last temptation of Christ, those were the, the soundtracks that I would listen to on repeat. Um, and if I ever had like, you know, a date where I thought, you know, like I'd put on, you know, I was a very serious kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you put on the mission for your date and you, you put <laughs> down music. Like <laughs> people were so Gabriel Zobo is the the perfect mood setter, yeah, for dates. <laughs> uh, 
And of course, it's funny because I also, my mom was a comedian. She was the first woman to perform at the comedy store. So I have a real sense of the absurd and, uh, and I love comic timing. Like it's just, it's one of the things that I just, there's no heartier laugh than when you're in an intensive, you know, like when the darker things get, the, the funnier things get, you know, it's like, it, it, there's a, a, an intensity i guess that would be the kind of defining factor which is um why i don't always you know i can be a pain in the ass <laughs> no i totally agree i mean that I'm, I'm a fan of the dark comedy and stuff like that and just uh, comic watching comics work is it's very much like any other you know timing and structure and everything like when a good comic is on stage and you can see the the I mean, a good comic, you won't see the, the bits and pieces moving, but I always like, I really got into stand-up comedy recently. It's just a lot, a lot of the podcasts because every comedian has a podcast. So I'm just in that world now with Tom Segura and his wife and like Burt Kreischer and, you know, all these, <laughs> like Nikki Glaser and all these great comics. So I'm just like, yeah, Bobby Lee or they always crack me up, but, um, but back to music. Yes. So <laughs> back to music. I want to talk, let's, let's talk well, about Jenny. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, well, one of the most, uh, you know, what, what brought us together was this uh, film and score for a film that's about to come out on Netflix called Split at the Root. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, an exquisite film about the families that have been separated at the border. Uh, and I was able to write some of the music that is dearest to my heart and really feels like it's the most pure expression of my heart, uh, of kind of almost anything I've I mean of course I put all of my heart I summon the angels I summon you know I I I reach as deep as I can you know I give all of myself um to anything but this was one of those that where I just connected and uh and like 90 percent of my first drafts of 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 the score were approved uh which is i don't know if you how much you talk to different film composers about like the revision process and the notes and oh, fine yes. dialing in the tone you know Ginny and georgia was one where it took you know took almost the first the whole first season to really dial in the sound of the show yeah. um and uh and split at the root though was just like direct a direct uh transmission really yeah, um, yeah. And i feel uh, uh so the soundtrack is coming out and i am just so grateful that i have a, a you know partner in node records that is gonna yes uh, share it and and i'm i'm really i love it deeply yeah well let's jump into yeah i was uh, well i was going to start with uh, jenny and georgia but let's actually start with split at the root um is so it is coming out uh, to Netflix, and uh, again, you have a pretty established uh, filmography and, and documentaries, and you, you know, talking about your background and in your kind of activist, you know, endeavors and kind of like your, your being a human activist and all that stuff. And um, I'm curious, as a composer, what is that? What draws you to documentaries? Is it just the 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 real the real aspect, the kind of human nature of it, and just kind of discovering human stories that are you know nonfiction? Is that what kind of draws you to documentaries? Yeah. Uh, the truth is that uh, that to me a story is a story. Mm. You know, I've done okay. uh, probably like half and half of you know docs and and narrative stuff. To me, it's a story is a story, and I just want to be the sound that opens people's hearts to be able to hear a story that they wouldn't necessarily be open to. 
you yeah. know, whether that narrative, you know, like there, there was a lot of heavy shit in Jinan, Georgia, as lighthearted as it is on at some, you know, sometimes. Um, and, but in documentaries, I think music is especially important because, you know, it can be didactic. It can feel like work. And if you don't have music that kind of gives you like, that holds your hand a little bit. I mean, obviously, if any director is listening, I'm not trying to step on any emotion or, uh, you know, be too on the nose or be the emotion for the character or whatever. But, you know, there are times where, you know, things are just difficult. And yeah. if you have, uh, you know, if you have music that, that opens up a heart, uh, what is it, that, like fertilizes the soil, then the seed of emotion and message of the character and the content of the, of the dialogue can penetrate better. And uh, so that has been part of, that's kind of been my process. I love documentaries. I, I, my intention is to be of service, yeah. is to, to make music that opens people's hearts and in every capacity, whether it's with my, my solo albums with my band opium moon um which is the best music to meditate to or make out to by the way um noted <laughs> um, whether it's, uh whether it's uh you know film and or television i i want to be a a you know i think that if if when you can feel your own heart you're more likely to feel the heart in front of you yeah. And that's the microcosm of how to make peace in the world. So, you know, this might seem a little airy-fairy to some people, but uh, that is my intention. And I am very, it's a solemn intention. You know, it's kind of a hypocritic yeah. oath for me. Um, and uh, and so, so any story that, you know, I, I've been part of stuff that, you know, maybe seemed like it had no purpose but it, there's always something you know anytime you humanize someone anytime we inspire compassion anytime we create a new idea or allow somebody else to feel their own heart or or identity or explore a new concept it's good for the world and that's my mission with with music yeah so that's... documentary is is a really good way to do that Absolutely. So for, for uh, Split at the Root, if you can explain maybe for people uh, what the documentary is about and talk to me about your process of working with uh, director Linda Goldstein-Knowlton and what you two were talking about for the music, what she wanted or what she envisioned for the score and then what you envisioned and how you kind of, what you, how you applied the music to it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned before, it's about the, the immigrant families that have been separated at the border due to the Trump administration policy, but not just Trump. Uh, U.S. has a really dysfunctional immigration policy, and it's continuing under Biden. And there's still thousands of children that haven't been reunited with their with their families. Uh, you know, I don't know how we, you know, we, we you, you know, we we become numb to this kind of stuff uh, because there's statistics, and we hear about it on the news, and then with the kind of divisiveness of the news and the fact that you know that facts are optional these days. Uh, you know, you, you like, you, like people are actually like, oh, they're not really separated or they're separate, you know, but, but right. they, they don't, they're not really their children, you know, like it just stuff, you know, when you hear the stories of these women, they are running for their lives with bullet wounds, with their children being like 
kidnapped and they're, yeah. they're fleeing for their lives and their children's safety. Um, and they come here because it's actually part of our constitution that we would have an asylum process um and it's been so politicized that we and uh and what i realized actually is uh in my studies of the brain that um when fear is activated it activates the amygdala with the you know the reptilian brain the fight or flight brain the we're genetically programmed when the amygdala is activated it hijacks the energy from the rest of the brain mm. so that we're not able to actually feel compassion which wow. is what Fox news does it stokes the fear that's what the you know the extremists do they stoke fear and yeah. then then people stop feeling compassion and so when you actually tell a story you know listening to these women's stories it, you can't help but feel empathy and love and understanding. And then we come to realize, you know, at least half of the problems that they're running from were actually caused by US policy, foreign policy. Um, so we do bear some responsibility. And, yeah. you know, we. Uh, so Linda basically, you know, we had a, she just sent it to me. I mean, it really, the, the, the film speaks for itself. She didn't really, it was like, they didn't really have much temp uh, temp music, uh, which was great. And I actually was very inspired by, I love, uh, Gustavo Santolala and especially his earlier, you know, more indie film, you know, Ron Rocco, his, his, his albums, yeah. Ron Rocco. And, um, and so I was really inspired by that. That's so intimate and delicate and so gentle, just gen that the gentility and that, uh, and sensitivity in that music, uh, felt like it was really right for these women's stories. So I I own a Chirango. Um, I work with a brilliant guitar player named Woody Applin Alp, who is uh, the the featured soloist on this album, um, and uh, on the score. And uh, and I wrote some themes that sounded like the stories of the women that were, you know, whose stories. And and I shared it with Linda, and she said yes. <laughs> and it was basically it was like. There was no, you know, the if I, I had to dial it back a couple times, yeah. but but for the most part, it was just like I I felt it, I I received it, I wrote it, played it, produced it, and shared it, and it was it was a match made in heaven. And uh, and actually, when it uh, premiered at South by Southwest, uh, one of the women who is who got asylum. Um, was at the film festival and I got to serenade oh, wow. her and she cried and it was absolutely, you know, yeah. one of those great soul edifying moments, you know. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, congratulations on on that. And 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 yeah, Sweat the Root uh, premieres, I think I'm trying to remember is it March fourth. Right? Or March third, yeah. Something March third yeah. or fourth, yeah. Uh, on Netflix, yeah. And yes. uh, and the other nice thing is that it's uh, Ava DuVernay's company who bought it, who who picked it up. So they are, you know, I uh, thirteen was one of my favorite, you know, the, the Central Park five movie and yeah. you know, she all of her films are just have so much consciousness and integrity um to be aligned with. I haven't yet gotten to connect with them and I hope that I will. Uh but uh but they I have a lot of identity for for the kind of integrity that they have in all of their projects. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, that makes me really happy.
Absolutely. Well, uh, let's. I want to shift over. Uh, let's jump into. We mentioned earlier, Jenny and Georgia, and you already talked about how you co-composed um, this. You co-composed season one and two with uh, Ben Bromfield. Um, Bromfield. And so I'm curious. You mentioned how season one took some time to find the tone. So I wonder if you could maybe, yeah, take us across. So we season two just premiered last month, and congratulations again. You broke all these amazing records of viewing numbers, and and Jenny and Georgia has become kind of this, uh, you know, part of of the culture now so people are the music the songs especially so how has the from when you started the show how did you find the tone what was I guess the journey to finding that tone and finding the sound of the show and how has it evolved in season two uh well when we first got the show they they actually had another composer uh that they had fired who just oh, wow. was, uh so we we brought on quite late um, and kind of thrown into it. And we were sent the first three episodes, and the first three episodes don't really tell the whole story. They don't. They did not tell us how dark it was going to actually get. Um, basically, we you know we we thought we knew what it was going to be. You know, it was right, kind right. of a Gilmore Girls kind of like slight you know sort of a little comic, some emotion, dramedy kind of vibe. We went for it. They were like. This is not hitting it. This does not encapsulate. And to the credit of Sarah Lampert and Deb Fisher, uh, uh, Sarah created the show and Deb was showrunner. Um, they were like, no, this is a much more complex tonally show. This the show yeah. has, you know, is equal parts Gilmore Girls with, um, and I'm gonna kind of blank out on some of the uh, the other inspirations. Um, some other like a little Friday Night Lights, a little, uh, there's a show, a bunch of kind of teen shows that I had never been exposed to. Yeah. Um, but like kind of campy, kind of serious, kind of um, comic, kind of dark. And we just kept like, we, we, we handed in the first episode and they called us and said, yeah, no, not at all. And we were both were freaked out. It was like, oh shit, this is, we're gonna get canned. Um, wow. I went into, my, I, I have a habit of uh, of just kind of going into the cave, into the studio um, for like a week without sleeping or eating or like, you know, or bathing. Um, and um, and I just went into the cave and created all this music that I like, you know, tried to and those and Ben uh, and Ben was also composing. And we just kind of we came out with this like a, a fresh new batch of material and i didn't we didn't even know how dark it was going to get um because they hadn't finished cutting all the episodes and we hadn't you know we hadn't seen them yeah. um, we hadn't read scripts um and and they were you know and also the pandemic had just happened the world just shut down so right. you know, we were all learning how to use technology figure out how to like communicate with each other normally we have um you know for every film i've done I, you know, the director comes to my studio once where, you know, once we've had a couple rounds, you get the director in the room and you say, okay, well, what sound is not working for you? You know, yeah. okay, and give them a fader that they can, you know, like work with and figure out like how to dial in exactly what their vision is. Uh, we couldn't do any of that because of the pandemic. Ben and I couldn't even be in a room together. We were in the room together like twice before we had to, and we'd never, really worked together before we had jammed together uh we were introduced to each other by tree adams who you may know and i don't know oh yeah interviewed I've, I've interviewed tree yeah yeah 
um, Tree, I had only worked with Tree as a violinist and singer. I hadn't worked with him as a composer, but I, I had actually asked him to pitch with me on a show uh, as a partner because I knew I wouldn't, I had never done television before and I knew I wouldn't get taken seriously without a partner who had had, you know, a history in TV. And he was kind enough to just partner with me. We didn't get the show, but he then started thinking of me as a composer. So when Ben, who had been his uh, composer's assistant for five years, uh, and he had been his, you know, Tree was his mentor uh, and friend. Um, when Ben called him and said, I want to work with a woman composer, because they they seemed to feel that this this was a very woman-centric, you know, uh, show. They, they were thinking a woman composer would be better. Uh, he recommended me. So Ben and I got together and we pitched and it it worked out. Uh, but mm -hmm. and we just we started dialing it in and we we've come to understand that um, having a batch of material that is sort of like uh, like making a record and that's really what my the, like the bulk of my history my musical history and career have been is making records. So I just went into the studio and just made a bunch of album tracks basically and took apart the stems and they all became like bits and pieces, building blocks yeah. for cues that we were then able to work off. It was kind of like doing a suite, you know? Yeah. So I made, I made all these suites uh, and we, uh, and then it, and Ben and I for season two, Ben and I got together and made a bunch of suites together and, um, and, all of those got into the show at different places. We just gave the music editor, you know, a, a, a bunch of stuff. And they were also able to temp with our season one stuff, mm. uh, which had been so hard one. I mean, we we had as many as 15 revisions on some cues um, for season one. And it, but it was, I, I am a kind of no stone left unturned person in my own life. And I don't have kids and I don't have, um, I have a very understanding husband. Um, and so I, you know, I, I basically, I will, I am the kind of person that I don't let go. I'm a pit bull, a musical pit yeah. bull. I do not let go until I've got it. And Sarah Lampert is the same way with her vision of like, this will dial, you know, we will get this whether, and it doesn't matter if it's like, you know, literally a, a two second cue that will be heard at a, you know, a, a mosquito volume for her, it has to be right. And, uh, you know, it can be, uh, you know, it, it's very exacting, but she doesn't apologize for it. And I don't either. And it's like, we, we really, you know, we really, uh, Ben and I, and Ben is, um, Ben is a more balanced individual. I think, <laughs> uh, he really knows how to keep the pace, you know, he knows how to keep the pace and make sure, you know, things are orderly. And, and I've learned a lot from him and he's, you know, he's now making out more album tracks, you know, like we, we've, we've, yeah. we've rubbed off on each other, but we really like, we're both, I think where we really, uh, have, have been such a, uh, um, lucky pair is that we both improvise really well we're both very fluid musicians he's a brilliant pianist um he's he he's a great improviser so when we you know we we can adjust and and like make things happen very quickly uh as needed and so we uh you know we were able to just kind of fall into this like kind of magical tango of sorts through, yeah. you know, and then season two, once we had the, the sound of show, we, uh, it just, it became really natural. We had a couple of revisions um, and then we would get in these kind of live sessions with, uh, with Sarah and, uh, and uh, over Zoom actually. And 
uh, you know, tweak things on the fly. And if she, you know, some little thing wasn't working, you know, we'll just go like, okay, hold that thought. You guys work. I'll go record something else. And then I'll like, we'll, we'll like pipe it in and we'll, um, and it just, it, uh, the lucky thing is we both like, we're both very fluid uh, musical individuals. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, I kind of think back at the, who, you're not going to say, but the, the poor the composer who was originally got fired on must have been torment i mean the fact that you and ben were able to i guess crack that rubik's cube of course just shows how challenging i think the show was and, was, and i could not have done this on my own 100 yeah. percent. i don't think i don't think any composer could have done it on their own uh, yeah. honestly um it was really you know just in terms of the sheer volume of music the sheer complexity of the tones um to dial that in, you know, like Sarah's vision was just really remarkable. I was afraid at first that it was going to kind of be hodgepodge because there were so mm. many influences. But to her credit, uh, you know, to to the whole team's credit, everyone's credit, uh, it really came out as a, it, you know, it's come out as a cohesive as a cohesive thing. The pilot's a little clunky, I will say that. But if you can get past the pi- pilot, it really is like this binge-worthy kind of. You yeah. know, universe that and one of the things that I'm really proud of is um that we we have we we have the way we ended up dialing it in to me doesn't sound like any other show it really sounds like Ginny and Georgia yeah. uh, and and I I like that because and the more the more tv and movies I consume the more I can tell Oh, they tempt with that. Oh, they right. tempt with that. And, you know, like, you know, you can hear the influences and you can hear how, like, people who, you know, like, who just can't, you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to win this battle. I'm just going to do something that sounds like what they tempt with and not have to, you know, and get my victories where I can, you know, and, uh, and to their credit, that's probably how, you know, the only way to survive in some yeah. environment. Um, but this was a particular and we did have to you know we had to fight against chasing temp a lot you know that was the biggest thing because sarah spent so much time dialing in the temp that Mm. if it wasn't exactly what she wanted at the you know like that temp we were like that was the real issue so once we finally got past the chasing temp situation we were able to take some big swings and find the the things that that felt unique to this yeah, I mean, that's the challenge and the fact that you're able to create something, a unique soundscape, a unique sound world for this show and these characters. And uh, that's just, I think, more power to you and Ben. I mean, that's just so amazing. But also, I'm curious, so talk to me about the, so, it's, you know, we mentioned their songs as well. So season two, of course, has a central plot part where the characters are part of a play and you got to create the music for this, right? So I'm curious what the... Yeah what the process was of creating, I guess, yeah, there it would be diegetic songs appearing within the, you know, the, the sound of the world and these, and the cast yeah. is performing. So what was that process like? And was it fun to, to, to kind of just write songs in this, these certain styles? <laughs> like that's, that's kind of easy for me. Like writing songs is a thing that I do that right. musical theater was not so much, but I'm a classically trained violinist. So I like, so I realized that and this was not going to be a like a, a pop song musical. This was right. they wanted it to be American Songbook. They wanted Into the Woods. You know, they wanted they wanted they also wanted it to sort of be uh, a tip of the hat to um, 
to Bridgerton. So yes. they made it you know, this Victorian England kind of uh, Jane Austen aesthetic uh, with the romance, but they also wanted it to have the girl power of, you know, like a Ms. Marvel or Anola Holmes uh, kind of thing. So, we, you know, it, it was kind of a confluence of, of opposing influences that we had to wrestle with. Um, and uh, you know, the love song couldn't just be a love song. It had to be, you know, an anti-love song. So, yeah. uh, so we wrote, you know, I'd never love someone. Um, and then they wanted a duet between the evil old crone and the ingenue. And I was a little bit uh, worried about that because that seemed like it was really going to have to, you know, adhere to certain musical theater rules. Ben right. is a real, like Ben actually music directed musical theater in high school um oh, wow. in fact the high school that this show is based on because he went to high school with sarah um so he uh he you know we actually for our pit orchestra we used the same pit orchestra that that he used same instrumentation that he used in high school um wow. where you have to basically you know orchestrate for who plays what instruments um uh so um but i uh, but I remembered when I was thinking about how do you have you know, it was like the evil old witch, but there are no witches in in uh, in Jane Austen, and so I thought, and then I I just I was a little confused. Then I remembered what my grandmother, evil older sister's last words to me were. She leaned in with her shaky finger and she said, "You think you know, you don't know. Marriage is a dungeon," and. It was so funny and I never forgot it. And it just, it was so hilarious. I, I just, and it sings so well. Uh, and honestly, I, I was high at the time. And I just like, <laughs> I, like, I was like, a marriage is a dungeon. It's a dungeon. Love is just a weapon, just a weapon. And like, it just like, and melody and lyric come very, like they, they come natural to me. So I, like, I kind of, the, 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 the core of it came in a, in a flurry of um, insanity, and I uh, and Ben came over, and we wrote both songs, uh, both the the main love song "I'd Never Love Someone" and um, and "Marriage Is a Dungeon" in one afternoon. Um, it came together very quickly. We sort of we got the you know the counterpoint of the of the bridge and the the duet part uh, together, and we worked it out and you know modified a few chords here and there and. <laughs> Uh, and it was just really fun. And uh, Marriage's Dungeon is going on a million streams now. Uh, yeah, it is blowing up. <laughs> it's it's uh, and actually it's hilarious because it's all over TikTok as well. Yeah. Um, like uh, it, I I was hoping something like this might happen. So we're <laughs> hopefully gonna go for a uh, an Emmy, you know, a little best song action there. Yeah, so that would be awesome. Watching is kind of. You know, it's it's curious. It's really fun. It's really fun, <laughs> and, and how it relates to the plot. It basically they wanted to. You know, it was like this theme of you know to the dance where you must find a man to marry. You know, but you want but you want to fall in love, but you don't want to lose yourself. Um. So, uh. So it was really we were kind of wrestling and, and with like these feminist themes in a way. Hold on one second. Pardon, oh yeah, sure. Interview, my love. I love you. Right. My marriage is not a dungeon, by the way. Um, <laughs> neither, no, neither is mine. <laughs> but now I do want to smoke some jazz cabbage and go listen to Marriage is a Dungeon yeah, after exactly this interview. Jazz cabbage. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's hilarious. Um, anyway, uh, so we, uh, it, I can't remember what I was saying, but anyway, it was, yeah, this, the songs are really, 
are really fun. And yeah. the, the and, and the truth is actually, you know, as we do, we do deal with, you know, kind of the 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 feminine gaze as it's you know yes. as the term has been coined now in this uh, in the show and uh, this. Uh, for most women around the world and throughout history, marriage still is a dungeon. So yeah, it's yeah. not, you know, it's 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 all fun and games, but it actually is like rooted in, you know, kind of the the kind of social justice imperative of the show. Yeah, I mean, it, so yeah, it's just amazing that what you and Ben were able to put together and how the the, the show has made it almost uh, yeah it's found its voice it, uh, very good i mean you were able to set the tone in season one now season two and of course i'm sure season three will be coming given um, <laughs> what 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 a success it has been so congratulations uh on all of that and of course congratulations at split at the root um but before we wrap up i do want to i'm curious just kind of looking back we've talked about so much about all your process and different types of things where you're working on solo albums or film i'm curious what is there like a favorite if you had to pick like a section of the workflow like it, whether it was coming up with initial idea whether it was recording whether it was jamming or playing or coming up with themes or whether it was finally seeing the finished product I'm curious what was the what is the kind of your favorite most creatively rewarding I guess part of the whole workflow from like start to end is there like a part that you would just relish every time or like oh, I can't wait to get this to this part of it <laughs> yeah it's the it's the inception point um yeah it's, you know what we first are given the spark of inspiration so um, for you that's like yeah that's the, that's what you live for kind of that part but, but honestly that uh i kind of think about that more uh as a broader theme which is the, the feeling of being in the flow mm. you know, being, and that flow state is actually present in every phase it yes. can be anyway that's what i aspire to you know it's like, so I've got a bunch of ideas. I'm writing a quartet right now for uh, just to be able to create some music that's represented on my reel right now. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, so I've got three different ideas that I that I feel are really strong, I, I like to think, uh, are, are strong. I have yet to actualize them and actually orchestrate them and turn like, manifest them i've been having some apprehension about that and every time there's always an excuse there's always something that needs to be done and you know the reason why I, I didn't get to it today um so but i know that once i do do that there's yeah. going to be a flow state that occurs there um and once i'm in that flow state it'll be really exciting to see what what i think the thing that i love the most is uh what i what uh what i didn't expect what the the unexpected the you know, being receptive to something that I didn't plan, yeah. even though you got to plan as much as possible. But like, you know, when you, the thrill of hearing people play your music um, is that it comes alive. It's something you didn't, you know, you, you didn't expect to, you know, like you, you yeah. know what it's going to sound like, cause you've got the samples, you've got the mock-ups, whatever, but, um, but like, it's just, there's a, 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 a vibe vitality um, that comes with, you know, with when somebody when that happens so there's it's basically the flow of the unexpected of the unknown when the when you're open to the unknown coming through you know coming through the lens of what you of your vision you know that the it basically is the confluence of vision and the unknown in that flow state yeah. that is my favorite 
thing about making music. And that can happen anytime, anywhere, at any phase of the process. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it happens, you know, I love, I love having discussions with the director. I love to hear what their vision is. And then, and as they're talking, you get ideas, you know, and like you want to yeah. hear like, just the, the the brainstorming that it's really the flow of the un, of of receiving the unknown that is the excitement the, the exciting thing for me so yeah I mean I I love we describe that because I have I'm in the same way where it's like I, if I see like something in front of me that needs to be done it's just like sometimes there's that apprehension there's like a block to get to it and then once you like break through that it's like you don't want to be you don't want it to end you're just in it and then your brain is just being stimulated because it's just new creations and everything is new and you're just creating stuff out of nowhere and then then you just and then you see it manifest and then you see it come to life and then of course then it'll down the line it, just, it is it is it is a thing you brought into the world so yeah it, the way you describe that is perfect <laughs> well it's uh i i think that that's possible i think honestly um music is and i just want to say a little word about my band i have a beautiful band called yes i mentioned um we uh we won the grammy a couple years ago and were nominated last year and um and uh and that band is devoted like you know there are a handful of themes but then the rest of it is improvised really and you just have to be at the top of your game to be able to ride surf the wave of that inspiration in a way that because we recorded all at once there we're not punching in it's like yeah. it's really the essence of flow and uh and um uh i know there was a reason why i brought that up it's very cinematic one for one we yeah. uh, mb gordy uh the percussionist who's in you know half the soundtracks you hear are have mb gordy on them um uh, Itai Disraeli, my husband, on bass. Hamid Saidi, brilliant santur, Persian hammer dulcimer, uh, um, plays. Uh, and we, uh, we, I, I look forward to being able to score a film with them as well to really be in the flow, in that way. Um, yeah. And and we did a, a TED talk uh, a couple of years ago uh, where we talked about how music is really a metaphor for how to make peace in the world. Well, it's also a, a metaphor for how to just be in the world the spirit of yeah. discovery and being receptive to the unknown and feeling the flow of whatever the lesson or the inspiration is from any place we go that is really the 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 lesson that's of that's the blessing of music that if we can carry it as a template for how to live yes everywhere that's when life is truly enchanted absolutely well Lily, thank you so much for, I mean, so well said, so beautiful. I think it's a beautiful way to to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much for your insight this evening and sitting down with me. I was just, uh, I just had a, such a wonderful time talking with you and hearing about your insight and your approach to to your work. It's, it's just great. So thank you so much. And congratulations on, I guess, Split at the Root and, and, Jean, and Janine Georgia and all the, all, everything that's to come as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat with you and I love your show and uh, I hope we can stay in touch.